people who played for him had to wear two pairs of socks, and they had to be 50% cotton, and uh, they had to wear a shoe half a size too small, and they had to be properly laced. And, and, and one of the first things he did with incoming freshmen, and not only with the incoming freshmen, but with the returning team in the first practice, was to have them report in their workout gear, but barefoot, and he would be barefoot, and he would then demonstrate to these college student athletes how to put on socks and how to smooth the wrinkles out of the bottom of the sock and then how to put the second pair of socks on and how to smooth all the wrinkles out and then how to put on a pair of tennis shoes as if they'd never put on tennis shoes before and then how to lace them up and show them how tightly they had to be laced in order for them to keep the pace of the game of basketball at the college level. His reasoning was that if you put your socks on wrong and develop a blister and have to sit on the bench, you'll be of no use to the team and no benefit to me as your coach. He was very careful about instructing his teams in things that most people would assume that an incoming freshman at college, except those who teaching college. Other people assume things about them that professors don't. They know them. But we would assume that a student would know how to put on a pair of socks. Uh, Of course, you go to campus today, nobody wears socks much, probably out here, but we would assume they'd know how to put on a pair of socks and that they'd know how to lace up a pair of tennis shoes. John Wooden assumed nothing. So this morning, I want to begin without any assumptions. And I want to talk to you about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I know you've come because you have some interest and probably are all very devoted followers of Christ, but I I don't want to assume that. I want to assume today that you're here not only to, to learn about how to serve better in the local church, but maybe your heart is open to even being a better disciple, or perhaps you've come as someone's guest today and you're really are not yet a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So we'll start there this morning as we get underway. And the Apostle Paul helps us understand what it means to be a follower of Christ really in three phrases, prepositional phrases uh, that he uses in these uh, scriptures that I read to you today. He begins at verse 1 when he talks about the saints in Christ Jesus. Being a follower of Christ begins when we move, uh, as the scripture says, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That, that is not something that just happens to people. The fact that we grow up in the church or that we're second or third generation, whatever, does not necessarily mean that we are followers of Jesus Christ. We may be followers of a tradition. One of the things that concerns me greatly about our church in these days is that we spend an awful lot of time defending the Wesleyan-Arminian holiness theological tradition, which I believe with all my heart, but it seems to me we should be talking more about Jesus and less about a theological tradition. If we talk about Jesus, we'll land in this theological tradition because it is who Jesus taught us to be. So we don't need to spend time defending a a theological construct 
what we need to be doing is introducing people to Jesus Christ. In the last uh, seven or eight years, we've had over 55,000 people who have decided no longer to worship in churches of the Nazarene throughout the United States and Canada. And for these last seven years, our worship attendance in the United States and Canada has been on the decrease. Personally, I believe some of that is this inordinate emphasis on a human tradition and too little emphasis on the lordship of Jesus and the saving, sanctifying power of Jesus because the world out there doesn't care about our ideas. They want to know about somebody who could change their lives, and a theological idea can't do that. It'll give a framework in which to work that out, but it won't solve the problem. We had a theological conference in Amsterdam several years ago, and we spent all week talking about John Wesley. I've got nothing against John Wesley. I never met the man, and I, I've read a lot of his stuff. I'm sure he was a nice, a nice person. However, with his marriage issues, we, you wouldn't call him to pastor a church for all the money in the world, Brother John. You just wouldn't do it. He and his wife lived at odds with one another, never had a, a real a warm, loving, yeah, relationship. It doesn't appear. As, that may be why he spent so many miles on horseback. I, <laughs> I don't know, and I don't know what she did for a diversion, but uh, John Wesley was a wonderful teacher and a, and a man of God, whatever his personal life, the issues with which he struggled, but a wonderful man, and we had a great conference. At the end of the conference, Gustavo Crocker, who was at that time the regional director, was invited to give the response as, as the host to this gathering. I'll never forget Gustavo's response after reading Scripture. He said, well... We've been here for a week talking about a dead man when we have a living Christ. We have a living Christ. And to be a Christian is to enter into the life offered by Jesus Christ. It's to become a follower of Christ. Now, don't go out of here saying that I'm denigrating our theological tradition. If you do, you won't be telling the truth. What I'm saying is that we follow Jesus that leads us into this tradition that we embrace and we cherish and we honor today. But our message is not to get people to believe a certain way. Our message is to get people to come to Christ and enter into Christ. And that starts with repentance. Repentance is precipitated by godly sorrow. Paul talks about that in Corinthians. He says there is a sorrow that comes to nothing. And we see a lot of that in, in our churches. We see a lot of people coming forward and they pray and they weep and they sob and they get up and they go out and Monday morning they're living as if nothing happened at the altar because in fact nothing did happen at the altar except they had an emotional catharsis and felt a little better because they cried. Crying will help a lot. It, it will relieve the tension. It will help us to feel better about things. It gives us a sense of having done something. But that, that godly sorrow counts for nothing unless it leads to repentance, which is, oh, God, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. I've wounded your heart. I've offended you, and I apologize for that, and I, I ask for your forgiveness, which he readily gives, for he's already provided our forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, we move out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. 
And we move from trusting in ourselves to trusting in Him. We are in Christ. And we believe that that conversion experience is not simply a matter of godly sorrow and repentance and a change of thinking, but there is involved in that regeneration. There is something that comes alive in us that was not alive before. There is the life of Jesus that comes into us, the Spirit of Christ who gives to us new desires and new appetites and new longings and puts us in a new direction. And hence we have the conflict with the old nature because now there is this regenerated Spirit living within us by the power of Christ now at war with everything to which we used to give ourselves when we were in the kingdom of darkness. To be in Christ. To be in Christ. Let's let's never diminish the significance of the new birth. It is when we come to faith in Christ that we turn our backs on sin. You hear some preaching about holiness, you'd think that it's when we're sanctified that we quit sinning. When we're sanctified, holy to the will and purpose of God, living the life pleasing to God becomes easier and less complicated for us. But we start that journey the moment we repent of our sins. We turn and walk away from the old. In fact, Paul said in in 2 Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, it's like they're a whole new person, a whole new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm talking about the fundamentals of discipleship, and it starts there in repentance and confession. The second thing that Paul says is found over in verse 10, verse 11. He talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. So beyond moving to a place where we're now in Christ, no longer in darkness, but in Christ, there is the possibility of a measure of fullness, the fullness of of righteousness that comes through Christ. Now that we're in Christ... All of the riches of Christ's meritonious, meritonious life and death, all of that becomes ours. We inherit everything that belongs to Him. And now we have the possibility of fullness. As you read the Bible, you, you begin to understand that this whole idea of fullness originated with Jesus. And the first we learn about it in the New Testament, at least in the sequential order that we have it, is in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Eugene Peterson says they shall have their fill of it. In other words, you can get more of it than you really bargained for, than you really looked for and thought about. It's a dangerous thing to come into the place of God. We should have signs out there saying, enter at your own risk. This is not a safe place. And God takes great liberties with the lives of those who are surrendered to him. I was in Canada and and gave the retirement certificate to a man last summer, and uh, I learned of his uh, poor story. He was just a common, ordinary center boy, minding his own business, and at school, he saw this young lady. Um, young men do that sort of thing. And he thought, I'd like to go out with her. So he asked her out. And she said, well, I don't go out with people who don't go to church. And he said, I'm ready. 
I'll go. Uh, men will do anything. So he started going to church with her. He didn't pay attention to the church. He paid attention to her. And finally, one day, she said, in the summer, she said, I'm going to be gone for a few weeks, so I won't see you. And he said, well, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to a youth camp and then to camp meeting. He said, well, can I go to some of that? She said, well, I, I guess you can. It's a, open to anybody. So he decided to go to camp meeting. Now, this is a this is a poor center boy just wanting to smooch on this little girl. And... Uh, his motives were not good. His desires were not good. There's nothing good about this boy. Monday night, he goes to church and he gets saved. Wednesday night, he's sanctified holy. Friday night, God calls him to preach. His whole life is ruined. <laughs> he's minding his own business. He wants to spend time with this little girl and suddenly his life's on an entirely different track. It's a very dangerous thing to come into the presence of the living God. The fact that we're so complacent and at ease in our churches makes me extremely nervous. We should all be on our tiptoes when we come in, lest God himself should come and break into our order and break into our systems and reveal his glory and drive us all to our knees in confession and repentance and acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord in a way we've not yet understood. And the apostle here is talking about a, a fullness and experience with God that not only forgives us of yesterday, but equips us for every tomorrow. God's not simply interested in giving us an alibi and excuse for bad behavior. And if you listen to some people preach, you'd think that's what grace is. Grace is just a covering for bad behavior. We're not under law. We're under grace. And that seems for some to be an excuse to live any way you want to. But grace is a powerful, life-changing word. It's not an excuse. It isn't a covering. God hasn't turned his eyes away from sinful behavior. What he's done is he's offered grace to fill us with his presence and cleanse us of the things that lead us in another direction and equip us to live for him in a way that honors him. We can be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He prays that great prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 that we would be filled up to the measure of the fullness of God himself. Filled up to the measure of the fullness of God himself. Now, that's beyond anything that any of us would ever hope for or suggest, lest it were not in the Scripture. Only because it's in the Scripture would we dare to preach that. So there is the beginning step, which is to enter into Christ. And then there is that, that next step of being filled with the fruit of righteousness. In our, in our tradition, it's okay to mention the tradition, in our tradition, we call that entire sanctification. We are entirely sanctified to the will and purpose of God. But that isn't the end of what he offers up. The offering is that through these experiences of grace and through his continued transformation, we can come to the place where life really isn't about me. It really is about him. Paul said, there has come a place in my life where I look at the thing that's most threatening to me, 
most disappointing to me, most heartbreaking to me, which is my current imprisonment in Rome. A very difficult thing for me. I'm in the, kept by the palace guard. But he said, I have to tell you, it's become evident to everyone that I am in prison for Christ. I'm not here because of the might of the Roman army. I'm not here because of the glory of the Roman Empire. I'm not here because the Jews betrayed me. I'm not here because the Romans outsmarted me. I'm not here because somebody followed me and tried to cause me trouble. I am here for Christ. There is a reason for this. There's a purpose in all of this. And I do not yet understand all of it, but I know that this is for Christ. And he illustrates that. He says, and because I'm here, a lot of people have been emboldened to preach the gospel. Some out of a really sincere heart. They, they've really been made strong by my suffering. And he said, I celebrate that. And then there are some who think that by preaching Christ, they can stir up more trouble, which will only complicate my current situation before the courts. And they'll think I'm running this operation from behind bars. And then Paul says this, but what does that matter? And in a sense, he's saying, this isn't about me anyway. This is about him. This is about him. It isn't likely that Satan will get most of us to rob a bank or kill our grandmas in the middle of the night. But it's, it is very, very likely that he will tempt us to allow our human self to creep back into the center of our existence. I was on the phone with a leader in our denomination here a few months ago, I guess a little over maybe two years ago now. Time flies whether you're having fun or not. So about two years ago. And he was not pleased. It would surprise you that somebody's not pleased with the general superintendent, I know, but he was not pleased with me. And uh, the longer we talked, the less pleased he became and the more displeased he became. And uh, our, we, ne- we never had any crosswords at all. He just hung up on me. I mean, we're j- I'm just talking along, and he said, very well. And I said, he can't do that. <laughs> he can't hang up on me. But, of course, he'd already done that, so he could. <laughs> and it bothered me. I thought, that's rude. That's where I started. That's rude. Nobody should be treated that way. And then I began to think, nobody should be treated that way, especially me. I should not be treated that way. And then I thought I'd tell God on him, and I did. And I sometimes think God doesn't, he might have been looking at Asia at that time and missed that little episode. So I explained it to him in full detail and how I felt and why it shouldn't have happened. And I thought, if you just... Cut me a little slack, I would call him and hang up on him. That would would make me feel better for some reason. I don't know why. And I continued to complain to God. And finally one day he said to me, "What what are you complaining for? I thought you were dead. I mean, I thought you died to yourself. Well, yeah, I did, but I didn't know he was going to hang up on me, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't want him to get hurt real bad. I mean, I don't want anything real bad to happen to him. If you could just kind of do something, that would make me feel better. 
We all have a human nature. And we all have emotions. And we all have a mind that works overtime to sometimes undermine and play back recordings of things that happened to us. And I realized that what Satan was trying to get me to do was to get my eyes off the purposes of the kingdom and on me, which would have complicated the issue a great deal. Most of our difficulties in the church originate right here. Good people, nice people, often spirit-filled people who are hurt or offended or afraid. And, And then they begin to focus on that. Rather than yielding it immediately to the Lord, they begin to focus on that. And if we're not careful, self moves right back in. And it isn't a matter of renouncing God or rejecting God. It's a matter of not remaining in him. We then move to remain in ourselves, and we become the center, and we forfeit an intimacy with God that complicates prayer and complicates worship, complicates every aspect of our life. Patty and I had a little argument on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning is our, when we were pastoring, Sunday morning was our best day for an argument. It's a wonderful, wonderful time, the pressure of getting everybody ready, and I always went to church early, and she got up, and then she had to get the kids up, and I had to go, and you know, it's just, it's just a it's fertile field for disagreement. And uh, the devil loves that. And we had a little bit of an argument. And, and so I went on. And um, she comes in. And of course, when we see each other at church, we just say, oh, it's so good to see you. <laughs> because that's what you do. That's how you behave. And so I'm worshiping in the first service. I'm, I'm, I worship... Uh, with my body, too, so I'm worshiping, and, and, and it seemed like the Lord said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, obviously, I'm worshiping you. Well, he said, you can't do that. Not while you're in a bad mood with her, you can't worship me. Now, if you want to worship in this service and be effective in this service, you've got to tell her you're sorry. And I thought, well, actually, she should apologize to me. <laughs> That's really the way that should go. Now, I don't know about the rest of you men, but my wife hardly ever says I'm sorry. She says she seldom does anything she's sorry for. <laughs> but she accepts them from me on a regular basis uh, as if they need to be said. And so I lean down to her and I apologized to her, and she gave me that little smile as if to say, I told you so. And, uh, and we went on and, and worshiped. It, it, it happens in life. You, you can't live in this world without bumping into people. And you can't work with people without offending or being offended, not, not even intentionally. The Lord said to me about my friend, he said, maybe that's the way he ends all of his conversations. And I thought, well, then he doesn't have many friends if he does. I can say that. But he does have a lot of friends. So I don't know. Maybe he thought the conversation was over. Maybe as far as he was concerned, it was over. And he just forgot to tell me that it was over. That was his way of saying, let's don't do this anymore. I don't know. But life happens. And there, there is an experience in the grace of God, where we can sometimes immediately and sometimes as we pray and work through it, we can say, but what does that matter? 
And what did it matter that somebody hung up? Nobody would have ever known about it if I hadn't told it. He didn't tell it. And maybe he didn't intend, maybe it wasn't his intent. Maybe when he said very well, that's the same as goodbye. I love you and I hope you have a wonderful day. I should cut him a little slack there. I don't know. It happens. And what Satan likes to do is he likes to get us focused on ourselves. It's okay to know that we're hurt. It's okay to know that we've been wounded. It's okay to admit that. But we cannot let that come between us and the purposes of God and the kingdom of God and the will of God. Because that's where churches fall into disarray and conflicts and hurt and pain and suffering. Everybody suffers when one of us decides that this is about me instead of about him. I'm talking about discipleship 101. I may be up into a 300 course now. I don't know. But uh, it's to be in Christ. It's to be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Christ. And it's to learn to live every experience in our lives and say this is for Christ. That's what David Nash was telling us about Brent Moore and his wife and Frank and Sue Moore dealing with this death of their little daughter and granddaughter. It's to say in the midst of all of that, this is for Christ. We don't understand it. and It doesn't make any sense to us. But this is all about, it isn't all about Marley or us. It is all about Christ and what he's doing in us and with us and through us. So we surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ or Christ. I've learned this about my journey with Christ, and I think probably yours. Sometimes we don't get our spiritual socks on right, or we don't get our sneakers laced up properly, and we get a blister. And we can't, we can't play as well as we've been playing, or we can't function. We can't make the cut that we need to make, or Our timing is off a bit, and we're not hitting the baskets like we like to hit them. We're not seeing the open man and throwing the pass. When when a part of us is hurting, then we begin to focus on ourselves. The good thing about Coach Wooden is that when a young man put his socks on wrong and laced his sneakers up improperly and got a blister on his feet, he didn't throw him off the team. He showed him again how to put them on. And he helped him heal the blister and get over the discomfort so he could be in the next game. Well, that's the way God is. He knows that sometimes we get a sore spot or a blister or a hurt. Thank God he doesn't toss us off the team and find somebody else. What he does is he says, Come up a little closer and let me show you how to do this again. Let me remind you of what this is all about. I've got a solution for this. You know it, but you need to learn it one more time. Now you get the wrinkle out here. You put a little salve on the wound. And I've got the balm of Gilead, which will help the healing. Put a little salve on the wound and let's get the sock on. Now let me show you again how to lace up your sneakers. Now you can't, you can't just go out there and start playing right now. You've got to give it a little time. You've got to get over this, and you're going to. I'm going to help you get over it. I don't expect you to get over it in a minute or two. Some do, some don't. But we're going to get you back in good spiritual health, and I'm going to put you back on the court. And pretty soon you'll be making free throws again in the game of life. 
To be a disciple, we have to decide to be one. And daily, we have to decide to continue to be one. That's just the way it is. And it might be that uh, this morning, maybe you and somebody had crosswords on the way. I don't know. Maybe you never have crosswords. You could do seminars. And I would go uh, find out about that. Or maybe, maybe you came here today and you love God, you're devoted to the kingdom, but you're, you're not making the cuts and the shots and the passes that you have at another time. For whatever the reason, it's not important that anybody know that. You, you know whether or not you're playing your A game or whether you're just playing in the game. God wants us to bring our best. And he's here today. If we've come with uh, a blister somewhere on our soul, he's here to help us heal that so we can be healthy again and serve him. Or, or maybe you've never yielded yourself to the full measure, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. You've been following, but you've never really surrendered to the fullness of God's Spirit in your life. And maybe you're just a, an innocent victim here today. You came with somebody, didn't know what this was all about, hadn't planned to think too much about God, and bang, here you are. The Holy Spirit's messing with your life and your head and calling you to repentance and confession. It's an opportunity you don't want to miss when God opens the door of grace and says, come, and I'll meet your needs. Stand with me, would you please? I want to breathe a word of prayer, and then Dave's going to lead us, uh, maybe the team, I'm not sure. We're going to sing a chorus of invitation. We won't hold long, but if there's somebody here today and in your heart you've got a sore spot or a hurt place, or you've been dealing with a spirit of bitterness or anger, whatever, God is here this morning to help us get everything back in order, get the wrinkles out, so we can be the person that God wants us to be. Spirit of the living God, we thank you for your presence here today. And now as we lift our voices to the Father, I pray that you will assist us in our praying, that you'll pray with words that we cannot utter. And if some of our wonderful brothers and sisters and friends are here this morning, and they're not playing their best game, they... they, I don't know why, but maybe not. I pray that today, whether while they're standing where they are or should they desire to come and kneel and wait before you for a few moments, I pray that you'll equip us all to be at our best. So in our lives and in our churches, we can win a string of games out there. That will be something that our church has never experienced before by the power of your Spirit. So speak to us this morning in the name of Jesus. If you'd like to join this one that's come, invite you to do so. You can stand or kneel, and we'll take time for prayer this morning. Let's uh, sing together, would you, Dave?